So if you have one, you can open up to Ephesians 5, and we're going to be looking at the first half of chapter 5, so verses 1 through 21, uh, and at Remedy, we stand as we read the section together, so uh, if, you could, if you could, let's all stand together, and we'll read the text together. After I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God, and by doing that, we're kind of doing a couple things. We're reminding ourselves that the Lord is good, that he would give us his text, and so we're thanking him for speaking to us, giving us his revealed will, and also, uh, in your heart, you're, you're saying to God, as, as you learn and hear things today, as the Holy Spirit teaches you, you want to say yes to those, you want to obey those things. So, starting at chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexual, moral, or impure, or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything and for everything to God. Let's do that again, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray that as we look at it now, God, that you would. Uh, you would teach us, you would help us see and understand um, what it is that you're showing uh, about what it means to imitate you and be like you in your word, and that as we consider these things, God, uh, that we wouldn't be overwhelmed by them, but instead we would give thanks to you for telling us, and that we would uh, pursue these things in our lives. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me speak with clarity, and though it is a large chunk of words, verses, and text, God, that I would be able to uh, say these things clearly, but also uh, concisely and quickly, um, not too long. Uh, Use this time for your glory, Jesus. We submit this time to you, and Holy Spirit, come now and do your work. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, uh, I've said this a few times, and so um, forgive me for too much repetitiveness, but Uh, chapters one through three are about orthodoxy. They're teaching us theology about Jesus. They're telling us uh, who God is, who we are in light of that, and how we are saved. It's it's telling us our identity. Um, There's not really any commands, not really any applications, not really any uh, practical living 
kind of things. But when you switch over to chapters 4 through 6, Paul transitions and begins to tell us those things. He switches from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, telling us, uh, now that he's told us who, who, who we are and our identity, this is what it means. This is what it looks like. This is what practical Christian living looks like. And as I pointed out last week, as we we're looking at uh, chapter 4, 17 uh, down to 32, that it would be real easy uh, to just want to know the list, just to want to know the things that we're supposed to do, the things that we're not supposed to do, and just say, I want to know those things so I can do those things. And I, I tried to, as much as we could, caution us all to realize that we don't work towards a right relationship with God by doing all these things uh, that he tells us to do and not doing all these things he tells us not to do. But instead, we work from that. We are already in Christ declared righteous. And so since that's the case, we want to do those things. We don't feel like we have to do those things in order to be declared righteous, but we want to uh, pursue these things in our life. So as we're going into uh, this next uh, section, and we're looking at more things that we're going to see uh, in regard to practical Christian living, things not to do, things to do. Let's remember that Christ is uh, telling us these things not so that we'll think we have to do those to finally have a right relationship with Jesus, but instead, because you already have one, because uh, you've been declared completely righteous if you're in Christ and you're a believer in Jesus. Uh, you are doing these things because you want to. If you're not a believer in Jesus, then the lists aren't really things you should think about right now. You should, but not necessarily right now. Instead, you should heed the cautions that he says in these verses to those that are outside of the kingdom of God. As he says in verse 5, uh, there are people who don't right now have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. And you want to you come to a knowledge of Christ. You want to trust in Jesus. You want to repent of your sin and ask Christ to forgive you, and then you will be forgiven. And then... Uh, you would begin the same process. So as we're looking at this, uh, I want to caution us all as we go into uh, a large set of verses that tells us things we should do and shouldn't do to remember that these are things that we do because we're already forgiven in Christ. Now, uh, the title of the sermon is to uh, be imitators of God or just imitators of God. And that comes from, we can see it right there in the text, therefore be imitators of God. And so as we're being told to be imitators of God, he's going to tell us to do that in four ways as we look through all the 21 verses. We imitate God by walking in love. We imitate God by walking as light. We imitate God by walking in wisdom. We imitate God by walking in the Spirit. Uh, you'll see those up there and what verses those are in. We'll get to that. But um, to, to start with, we're told that we're supposed to be imitators of God. If you have kids, uh, perhaps you've had the joy whenever they're right around two years old or so, they begin this imitation process whenever they're around you. Uh, they see that you're holding your hat or wearing your hat sideways or whatever have you wear it, or you fold your arms when you talk and they'll look at you and they'll see what you're doing and they'll try to try to do that kind of stuff and they, they begin imitating you at our house whenever all of our kids are upstairs and it's me and Christy and our youngest two-year-old Tristan downstairs I'll walk over towards the stairs everybody come on down and Tristan will walk, walk over there too everybody come down right now and then he'll walk over and they're all proud and I'll say did you tell him he goes yep I told him and he's all happy about himself anyway like so it's a real joy to see kind of the hilarity of children imitating you and the things that you say it can also be bad right they imitate the Bad things you do, and sometimes you're like, "Is that how I say stuff?" Oh man, that's not good. Um, they they don't. There's no bad things that my wife does, so they never have to actually imitate anything bad that she does. It's all the good stuff. They imitate the bad things that I do. Um, I'm just earning points right now. But anyway, um, so anyway, the point is this, right? Uh, 
is that we can see as children are two or so that they imitate us and they, they do what we do. And this is exact, and it's a joy to watch, but this is the exact thing that we're being told here. In this text, Paul is urging us like two-year-olds that imitate their earthly father, we as his adopted children should imitate our heavenly father. We look to him, see how he talks, watch how he interacts with people, look how he loves Uh, Think about his wisdom, and we imitate him. We want to do the things that he does. Therefore, be imitators of God. And he tells us in this text four ways that we imitate God. The first way is that we imitate God by walking in love. You can see it in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we are uh, children that are loved by God. And so since we're loved by God, now we love other people. And it says, and walking in love as Christ loved us. So there's the walking in love. So we imitate God by walking in love uh, because we're beloved children as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first thing we do, put up number one, is imitate God by walking in love. Imitate God by walking in love. And we see in verses one and two, Uh, what it means to walk in love. We can ask, what does it mean to walk in love? He gets specific with us in in verses one through two that there's two ways that we can walk in love. Namely, we love like the Father and namely, we love like Jesus. So if we wanna know what it means to walk in love, he tells us two specific ways to walk in love that we, we, we love like the Father and we love like Christ. You can see verse one, how we love like the Father. When he calls us beloved children, that means that, Uh, The Father has displayed to us a level of love that we can love like him. How has he done that? Well, we see it in 5.1. The answer is in 1.5. Here in 1.5.1, we're told that we're beloved children. We're explained how we are beloved children in 1.5, where he says, in love, he adopted us. And so we understand what it means to be beloved children by looking over at chapter 1, verse 5, and realizing that we're adopted. So if we're going to walk or imitate God by walking in love like the father, then the most practical application you can make is adopt children, right? God adopted us. We should adopt children. Now, not everyone can do that. I understand that. So what are some other aspects of the way that we can love like the father besides adopting children? Well, what is it that's done when children are adopted? They're brought in and they're shown kindness and mercy and compassion in ways that would have never happened before. And so the Bible gives us several commands in ways that we can do that. There's several ways in the text that we can, if we're not going to adopt children, but we still want to love like the Father. The Bible has several ways that we can love like the Father by showing great acts of compassion and mercy like Him. We can show Practical acts of mercy by caring for orphans and widows, as it says in James 1.27. We can love like the Father by practicing hospitality, as we're told to in Romans 12.13. We can love like the Father by caring for the poor, as we saw in uh, chapter 4.28, that we should care for the poor uh, when it says that we should work hard so that we can give things away. We can love like the Father by meeting the people's needs in our own church. When there's people in our church, we can show acts of compa- compassion and mercy towards them. We're told to do that in Galatians 6.10 to reach the, uh, the needs of our own church. We can also love like the Father by showing uh, 
kindness and forgiveness towards people. Whenever people have sinned against us, since God the Father has forgiven us in Christ Jesus, we can love like the Father by forgiving them, as we're told in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven us. So when we are told to imitate God by walking in love, we love like the Father. We love like the Father by being compassionate and merciful towards people. But we also love like the Son. Verse 2, not 1, but verse 2 tells us how we love like the Son. And what does it say? It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us by giving himself up. This is maybe one of the most intimidating verses in the Bible for selfish people like me. Give myself up to other people. What does that mean? Does that mean all the things I like I can't do anymore? Maybe. Maybe it does mean that. Maybe it does. But the ultimate imitator of the Father, of the Father's love, is Jesus. And we are supposed to imitate Jesus. Jesus gave himself up. Jesus personified sacrificial love. And we love like Jesus when we're willing to be sacrificial and give ourselves up. Now, let's note the obvious here. The only way that we can actually do that is because Jesus has actually done that first. Jesus practiced sacrificial love by going to the cross, and that enables us, then, therefore, to love like him and being sacrificial towards other people. But uh, we should be willing to give ourselves up for other people. Christ gave us the ultimate pattern. John, 1 John 3.18 tells us that love is not just words, but action. My wife tells me this all the time. She must really have 1 John 3.18. Let us live in, not in just word or talk, but in deed and action. Father, I need for you to do these things, not just say these things. And she's right. The way that I love like Christ is by giving myself up, uh, sacrificing the things that I would want to do in order to walk in love and love like Christ. And so... Uh, how can you do that? How is it that day by day you can find yourself giving yourself up for your fellow man, for your spouse, for your children, for your family, for your neighbor, for your coworker? What would it look like practically for you to give yourself up? Now, um, I'm not saying never ever take care of yourself. I'm not saying that. The Lord is still your father. And as a father who has children, who likes to give them gifts and watch them enjoy the gifts, not just, when I give them a gift, I don't want them to say, I don't want it. I got to give it to somebody else so that you'll like me. Like, I'm not saying that everything the Lord gives you, you should automatically give away because God really doesn't want you to be happy. That's not it, right? He wants you to be happy like a father wants his children to be happy. But also, as you enjoy his gifts, and the father loves to watch you enjoy his gifts, how can you also be like Christ? How can you walk in love by being Christ-like and giving yourself up towards other people? How can you do this? Jesus did it. And so should we. And notice, when Jesus did it, it says that it was a fragrant offering to God. So when you do it, it's an offering to God. It's an act of worship. Whenever you love like Christ and you're sacrificial in your love. So the first thing that we see is that we imitate God by walking in love, by being uh, those that love like the Father, showing acts of compassion and mercy to people. And we love like Jesus by being sacrificial to people. The second way that we imitate God is by walking as light. That's number two. You can go ahead and put it up. Walking as light. I'm not saying walking in the light. There's another verse that does that. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to shine like the stars in the DC talk. I'm not doing that one, right? That's not what I'm talking about. That's in there. I know it's in the Bible. I'm doing a different one. I'm doing verse eight. And I want you to notice this. Verse eight is Christ. I'm sorry, I had the DC talk moment. Uh, but anyway, um, so verse eight is, is 
this is in verses seven, 3 through 14. I want to start in verse 8, though. Um, 3 through 14 is going to do this. It's going to contrast walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. And we're going to look at that. But I want to start in verse 8. Klein Snodgrass, a commentator, points out, that's his name, K-L-Y-N-E Snodgrass. If we have a son one day, we could name him Klein Snodgrass Chambers. That's pretty good. Anyway, uh, so verse 8. Klein Snodgrass says this about verse 8. He says that verse 8, 5, 8, summarizes the entire book of Ephesians. Even more so, he says, summarizes all of Paul's theology. That's a pretty profound statement because not too many of us think Ephesians 5, 8. Yeah, what does that say? I don't know. It's not like John three sixteen. We have it, right? Listen to what it says. Uh, For at one time you were darkness. Notice, it doesn't say you were in darkness, It says, you were darkness. It's not as though sin were some kind of passive thing happening to you as though you had no choice. Oh, what is this sin that keeps happening to me? I'm walking in darkness. Like, I don't know. It's not like like you just needed a, a good point in the right direction. No, no, no. That's walking in darkness. You were darkness. You were willingly participating in evil acts of sin as an enemy of God. And then it says this. You were darkness, but now you are light. You are light, and just so we don't get too cocky, in the Lord, right? It's, it's because of Christ. So verse 8 starts off by telling us that we were darkness, but now we are light in the world. So walk as children of light. So we, not, we weren't just in the darkness. We were darkness. And therefore, we needed to now, be t- we're told to walk not in the light, but as light. We're told to walk as light. So the second thing is we imitate God by walking as light. We get that from verse 8. Now we can uh, come up from verse 8 and spread ourselves out at verses 3 through 14 and see what it means to walk as light. Uh, And it exhorts us in verses 3 through 14 to walk as light in three ways. tells us to walk as light. This won't be on the screen. Uh, You can take notes or just listen. Um, But it tells us in in, in three ways what it means to walk as light in 3 through 14. Some are direct exhortations and some are kind of indirect exhortations. The first one is an indirect exhortation because it actually tells us to not be an idolater. Therefore, the indirect exhortation is not being, the direct exhortation is not being an idolater. The indirect exhortation then is to be a worshiper of Jesus. You see what I mean? Anyway, look at at verses 3 through six, three through six. This is the first exhortation on what it means to, uh, to walk or to be, uh, walk in light. It says, but sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even be named among you as is proper among saints. Uh, leave verse four there, go to verse five, because verse three and five, you see mirror one another. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexual, moral, or impure, or is covetous. So it repeats those same three. And then it says, and we have a little parenthetical statement there. Paul didn't write in parentheses, that is an idolater. So we see here that practicing those three particular things, or even what's in verse four, uh, corrupt speech, doing those things is idolatry. So that means this. Impurity, sexual morality, greediness, or covetousness, or uh, practicing corrupt speech, are actually all matters of the heart. Those things are heart matters. And what happens is when we do those things, our heart wants those things, and we're not supposed to do those things and practice idolatry. Instead, our heart is to want to worship Jesus. So the first way we walk as light is to worship Jesus, not be an idolater. 
We walk as light by worshiping Jesus, not being an idolater. We can see the first one is sexual morality. That's the Greek word porneia, where the word pornography comes from in the English language. And porneia is just the broad term kind of covering all sexual sin. Basically, unless it's a man and a woman in the context of marriage, all of the things outside of that are porneia. Don't practice those things. Don't practice those things. Um, But also we see impurity. This just means filth. Or covetousness, this is greediness. This is the insatiable desire for more. It's never met. It's never quenched. It's the unquenched, insatiable desire for more, 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 more. And so in 3 and 5, he lists both of of those exact same things and says those things are a matter of the heart. And then in verse 4, he talks about uh, the same kind of concept out of the heart. You know, from out of the heart is what the mouth speaks. And he gives us some specific things there. He, there's, there's three ways that we practice corrupt speech. He told us there's filthiness, there's foolish talk and coarse joking. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So Christians should not have speech that is filthy, speech that is foolish talk, and speech that is coarse joking. He's not saying you can't be uh, joking. Like, joking and humor is fine. Coarse joking is not. So keep being funny if you're funny. Um, But what he says then is he helps us understand that uh, when those things are happening, or Luke 6.45, I should say, the person, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil for the abundance of the heart, uh, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the way to combat these things, filthiness, uh, foolish talk, and coarse joking, the way to combat those three things is to have thanksgiving. You can see it in the text. Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. If in your life, the way that you talk involves filthiness, foolish talk, coarse joking, the way you kill those things is to speak thanksgiving. You want those things to stop? Be more thankful. Verbally, be more thankful out loud to God the Father and to people in your life. Talk about the things that you're thankful for and you should see those things less and less. Now, if we put all those things together, when we see sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, practicing corrupt speech, etc., Paul tells us that if those things are happening in our lives, you can see it as it keeps going in verse 5. For if you have those things, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So you can ask yourself, oh man, if those things are happening in my life, does that mean I'm not going to go to heaven, but I'm going to go to hell? Maybe. All right, maybe, but I've never thought that the best way to convince you that you should go to heaven and not hell is to scare the hell out of you, right? Just, I don't want to go to hell, so how do I not do that? Uh, I want to go to Jesus then. So, because I don't think there's anybody in heaven that's just scared of hell. I think the people who are in heaven are the people that love Jesus. So, my goal is not to just give you a list of things and say, doing those things go to hell. That's not, that's not, I don't think that's profitable. The thing is to hold up Christ as our only hope, precious reality. Look at the beauty and the joy and the amazing love he displayed when going to the cross. Isn't that amazing? And say yes. And so now that you're his, don't have these things in your life. Don't have these things in your life. So if you're practicing those things and you see you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, then the best thing to say is those that persist in these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So just examine your own heart, examine your own life, examine your day-to-day living. Are you persisting in those things? And if you are, then take the big theological step back and look at your life and say, am I really a believer? Do I really treasure Jesus? 
Do I really prize Jesus? Am I really thankful for Jesus? Did I really confess my sin, ask for forgiveness, and now walk in, uh, in life as a believer? That's the thing that we should do. And I think that's what it's exhorting us to do, is to be a worshiper of Jesus, not an idolater. Not an idolater. That's the first way that we walk in the light. The second way that we walk in, li- in the light, or walk as light, sorry, is 7 through 10. Uh, so it says, therefore do not associate with them. Who's the them? Who's, who's the them? It tells us in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The them are the sons of disobedience. That's unbelievers. And then it says, therefore do not associate with them. So what that means, the word associate, does not mean don't ever hang out. How are, you gonna, how are we going to accomplish Matthew 28, the Great Commission, if we never hang out with unbelievers? So the association doesn't mean hang out. The association is in the context of what we're talking about, sin. Don't associate with them in practicing sin. Associate with them, of course, being their friend, pointing to Jesus, taking them out to dinner, hanging out with them, getting to know them, etc. of course. The association is about sinful practices, not just in general hangout. You know, get coffee, whatever. Um, So therefore don't associate with them. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light for the fruit of light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So here we're told that we are walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We see this phrase fruit of the light, which means that we are supposed to display the fruit of the light. So the first way that we, our exhortation to us is to worship Jesus and not idols. The second exhortation is to put on display the fruit of the light. And what does that mean? What does it mean to put on display the fruit of the light? Verses 7 through 10 tells us what putting on display the fruit of the light means. When we put on display the fruit of the light, we can see in verse seven, that means we don't partner in darkness. Do not associate with them. We associate with them in such a way that we hang out with them, but we don't associate with them in such a way that we practice sin with them. So the first way we display the fruit of the light is by not being sexually immoral, not being impure and greedy, not having corrupt speech, not whatever, fill in the blank. The second way we display the fruit of the light is by living in our new identity. As we've already talked about verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Philippians 3.16, not John 3.16, Philippians 3.16, let us hold true to what we have attained. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We have already attained righteousness, now let us hold true to that. Let us live that out. So the second way that we display fruit of the light is by living in our new identity. Since you are declared righteous, be righteous. Be holy as I am holy, as it says in Peter. So we live in our new identity. The third way we display fruit of the light, you can see it in verse 9, is uh, pursuing all that is good and right and true. God is good. God is right. God is true. So when we do good instead of evil, we put on display Jesus. God is right. So when we tell right things and not wrong things or half right things, we display Jesus. Whenever we tell the truth, and not lies, we display Jesus. And so we display the fruit of the light by pursuing all that is good and right and true. We also display the fruit of the light by 
uh, pleasing the Lord, doing things that please the Lord, trying to discern, verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord. When the culture all around us is screaming at us to do any kind of numbers of things that aren't pleasing to the Lord, I think maybe the most obvious, fundamental, overlooked, accidentally overlooked question is this, whenever we're walking through life. Does what I'm about to do please or displease the Lord? It's so obvious, but I think sometimes it's so easily overlooked, maybe accidentally. So whenever we display the fruit of the light, we ask ourselves, is what I'm about to do, does it please the Lord or does it not please the Lord? Not necessarily, is it okay? But does it please the Lord? Does it please the Lord? So that's the way we display the fruit of the light. The third exhortation we can see in verses 11 through 14 is that we are supposed to expose the works of darkness. Verse 11 through 14, take no part in the uh, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We should expose darkness. So what does this mean when we're talking about exposing darkness? Doing this means that we don't just avoid participation in sin, but we actively try to expose this sin. We, we don't just partic- actively stay away from darkness, but we also want to expose darkness that people are still in. Uh, there's ways to do this that's right and ways that's not. Perhaps you've been around some people that are unbelievers and they're, they're just, sinner, look what you did, everybody know. Like, that's not good, right? So the, the exposing of unbelievers' sin is, should be done in such a way that doesn't cause them to <laughs> not really like you, right? Instead, we want to do it in a way that's Christ-honoring. Just think of Jesus and his interaction with Zacchaeus. The little wee little man, he's up in the tree, and everybody hates him, and he's walking by, and he looks up at him, and he's like, oh, this light's bright. He looks up at him, and he's like, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you tonight. And everybody else is like, what? Are you serious? All I see is like red and yellow and blue circles right now in my eyes from looking at those lights. Anyway, so after, after he does that publicly, hey, Zacchaeus, treats him with honor and respect in front of everybody else. I want to have dinner with you tonight. Goes into his home and then still doesn't just rail on him in private, but still in a Christ-like way, talks to him about how he interacts with people and how he steals from them, etc. I think that's a good pattern for us. Whenever we're told here to expose darkness, when we look at the way Jesus interacted with people that were sinners, uh, that's the way that we should do it. We want to, you don't have to turn the lights down. It's fine. Um, I need to be able to see still. Uh, I'm getting old. Anyway, uh, so we ex- the third exhortation is to expose the works of darkness. What happens when we do that? Two things happen when we expose darkness. Whenever we do that, you can see in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works and harvest, but expose them. It's shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. Um, when we expose darkness, it means that sinners, unbelievers, because we're sinners too, unbelievers, uh, recognize and realize that what they're doing is sinful. We can do this in two ways, by word and by deed. By telling them, I'm sure Jesus had words that were unbelievably kind with, with Zacchaeus. These things you're doing. These things aren't right. God doesn't want you to do these things. So it, when you're around unbelievers, you should point out to them, if they're doing things that are sinful, that they shouldn't do it. Uh, you should want them to come to Christ, but still the things that are sinful pointed out. So yes in word, but there's also a second way, which is deeds. By watching the way you live your life, seeing how you interact with friends, family, spouse, fam- whatever. Whenever you interact, the way that you uh, do your taxes, the way that you, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever. 
how you live should be a contrast to the way that how they live. And so, sure, you tell them, but you also, if you never told them, they watch the way you live would also show them that they're in darkness and their darkness is being exposed. That's the first thing. Whenever we see, uh, when we're told to expose the works of darkness, we do this uh, and they become aware that they are sinners. Now, I want to zoom in on verse 12 because it's next and, and just point out something that kind of struck me when I was studying. It says, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. This verse struck me for a reason that Paul and the first century Christians uh, lived in such a different culture than us that I think that our culture has made us pretty numb. So it seems like our culture, Christian culture, says don't participate in the things that they're doing that are sinful. But, you know, when we talk about it that they're doing, the talking about it shouldn't make you feel bad. It shouldn't uh, make you feel shame. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't just not practice it, but whenever it's talked about, you should feel pretty shameful. Look at verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they, that's unbelievers, do in secret. When they're practicing their secret sins and you know about it, it's shameful to even speak about these things as believers. That is just, that struck me in such a way as like, man, I, I don't live and breathe in that culture. I just think as long as I'm not doing it, it's fine. But he... He's saying that even speaking about it should bring some level of shame in your own heart to, to have minds and thoughts and speech that talks about what they're doing. Not what you're doing, but what they're doing. That struck me in a way that thought, maybe we've become too numb to sin that we can speak of it pretty easily and we shouldn't be that numb. We shouldn't be that numb. Anyway, uh, we're talking about exposing the sin in unbelievers' lives. We do it by saying things to them in Christ-like way. But when that happens, when that happens, it should call them out from their, from their darkness. Now, there's no doubt. Let's be, let's be biblical here. Whenever we, whenever we tell people that they're sinners, it's going to go one of two ways. Romans 1, if it goes that way, they say, I don't care what Jesus says. I want to do whatever I say. And they even go even deeper into their own depravity and don't become Christians. We know that that happens, as it says in Romans 1. Um, but we also know that the other side can happen. That as it says here, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, and then you have probably kind of spaced off there in verse 14, this little saying, which is a combination of Jonah 1.6, Isaiah 29, and Isaiah 60, kind of put together in a, a familiar kind of first century saying. And this is about unbelievers. So this is not about believers. This is about unbelievers. Whenever they were dead in their sins, when Christ shines his light on them and they recognize that they're sinners and they come out of their uh, dead state into a life with Christ, this kind of saying sometimes might have been said at baptisms, even uh, whenever they were being baptized as a symbol of what had already previously happened, this statement would be said, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So you're being called out of death. You're being called out of your, your spiritual death because Christ has shined on you. Awake from that because God has saved you. And now Christ has shined on you. And now you are, were darkness. And now you are light as it says in verse 8. And so that's what also can happen. When we go to people that are unbelievers. And their sin is exposed when we talk to them about it. Sure they can go the other way. But that can happen too. They can be called out of death into life. God can use us 
amazingly, he can use us to call dead people who are darkness into light and make them light in the Lord. And so that's the second thing that can happen. Unbelievers can be awakened from the dead. That should give us great joy to know that the Lord, when their sin is exposed by using us, awakens them, Christ shines on them, and they literally become like us. They become light. Hallelujah, praise God for that. So do it. Do it in a Christ-like way, but do it. So what we see here is that we uh, walk, you're, you're ahead of me, I didn't go to wisdom, say, say on number two, we walk as light, go back to two, there we are, come on Care Bear. Uh, so we walk as light by worshiping Jesus, we walk in light by uh, displaying the fruit of the light, and we walk in light by exposing the works of darkness, and therefore when that happens, Christ can call them out of darkness to be, to be uh, awakened and now become light just like us. That's three through 14. That's the second way we imitate God. The third way we imitate God, you already know it, is number three, verses five through 17, is imitate God by walking in wisdom. Imitate God by walking in wisdom. Verse 15 through 17, you can see it right there in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So he's telling us that we wanna walk in wisdom. We want to walk in wisdom, just like we're supposed to walk as light. We also want to walk in wisdom. And I don't think that walking in wisdom just means kind of the little base, make good decisions. I don't think that's what it means. Be smart. I don't think it's that. It's more to it. Uh, He tells us three ways in verses 15 through 17 that we can walk in wisdom. So when we walk in wisdom, there's things that happen. Um, there's, There's ways that we should live. Look at this. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So when we walk in wisdom, it should cause you then to stop and look carefully. Look carefully at the decisions that you make. I Googled it. We make 35,000 decisions per day as adults. Kids make 6,000. Their life is so much easier. We all want to be like kids. We have to worry about mortgage and food and whatever. Just give me some donuts and ice cream. No, you got to have broccoli. I don't want broccoli. I want green candy. No. Like, anyway, back to this. We make 35,000 decisions per day. You can Google it if you want. I'm, I'm not telling you a lie. Look carefully. Walking as wise means looking carefully at every decision. Now, I'm not saying you need to do that with 35,000 decisions because you'll never get past decision one. Like, should I wear jeans or khakis? And you're at home all day because you can't decide. You never even got anything done. Like, so my point is, though, on the whole, as I'm going through my day and as I'm going through my week and as I'm going through my month, year, life, whatever, I'm supposed to look carefully at the decisions I'm making, not just assuming that everything's right and I'm okay. I have the Holy Spirit in me and I want to let the Holy Spirit inform those things. So walking in wisdom means looking carefully at your decisions, really thinking about what they are and running them through the grid, if you will, of Christ. That's the first way we walk in wisdom. Imitate God by walking in wisdom is by looking carefully at the 35,000 decisions we make per day. The second way that we walk in wisdom is by always making the best use of our time. Verse 16, making the best use of time because the days are evil. You know how when you go to like a, a place that you really think is awesome, you know, and it, a theme park or whatever, maybe a museum. Anyway, so museums just seem boring. Like there's some art. There's another picture. Anyway, so like... Uh, you can just Google those and look at them and save your time, not go there and spend a bunch of money. So like when you go to a theme park, like, and it's awesome, and it's got like so many things there, right? 
And you could, if you really did everything, it would take you like 15 hours, but you're there for three. So like, you're like, okay, uh, we got to do the most awesome stuff we can in the next three hours. Forget all the stuff that doesn't matter. I'm not going to fritter away my time at that. I want to do the best things that I can with these three hours I have. That's the way you're supposed to live life. It's exactly how you're supposed to live life. Relentlessly prioritize your schedule to Christ. Every single, walking in wisdom is doing that. It's making the most of your time. You don't have unlimited time. You shouldn't just be great at things that don't matter. You shouldn't be great at those things that don't matter. You should relentlessly prioritize your schedule as much as you can to do. You could do a whole bunch of things, but I have this short life, and so I need to relentlessly prioritize all these things to what Christ wants me to do. Walking in wisdom is doing that. Third one, walking in wisdom uh, means, in short, walking in wisdom means understanding the Bible. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what it, the will of the Lord is. When it says the will of the Lord, I don't think it means, oh, who should I marry? What college should I go to? It's just this mysterious will out there that I'm supposed to somehow discern and figure out through you know, prayer and fasting and meditation and the Holy Spirit and how am I supposed to figure it out? Um, there's no verse that says, first college, how do I go? Like, so I don't know what to do. It's not that. So the, the, the will of the Lord, I think it means the revealed will of the Lord. And the Lord has revealed his will specifically through the word. And so understanding the revealed will of the Lord, understanding the Bible. I think this walking in wisdom is living a life, making sure that you live a life that pours your heart and mind into this book so that you know it, you study it, you cross-reference it, you memorize it, you know what it says. Walking in wisdom is, is pouring your life into the way that God has actually already spoken to you through the Bible. And then after you do that, obeying it, not just knowing it, because we could have this huge head of knowledge. Look at my big heavy head. I know a bunch of stuff, but I don't do what it says. So it's, it's knowing this and then living it out. No, walking in wisdom is calling us to understand God's revealed will in his word and then applying it to our life, being obedient to what the text is telling us to do. That's the third thing when it says Imitate God. We imitate God by walking in wisdom. The last one. The last one is imitate God by walking in the spirit. Verse 18 through 21. We'll start at verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Last week we talked about the difference between active and passive verbs. Not that this is an English class, but sometimes it's helpful to remember, right? Active is something you do. Passive is something being done to you. This is a command to do a passive verb. This is like me telling you, Obey me by getting hit in the face. You know, like, like, I want people to hit me. Somebody hit me. I got to obey the command. So obey is telling you, commanding you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do I obey a passive verb? That's what he's telling me. Don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. How do I do that? How do I obey a passive verb? Well, obviously, this is something God does. God fills you with the Holy Spirit. How do I obey this? Uh, there's a number of ways uh, that we can do this, which I've pointed to you several times uh, as we've preached on the Holy Spirit, etc. Uh, we know that in Ephesians chapter 3, in the prayer to the Ephesians, that we can be filled with all the fullness of God, as it says in 319, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, I think can be taken as synonymous with being filled with the Spirit. And then 318, the way you do it is know the love of Christ as you pour yourself deeper and deeper into knowing the love of Christ, then you can be 
filled by God, to be filled with the, all the fullness of God, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the way that you can obey a passive verb is by pursuing Christ and knowing Christ in his word. Praying, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. You can do stuff, and then the Lord is the one that does it. But still, you can do stuff. You can know Christ. You can know his word. You can pursue Christ. You can pray the Lord would fill you, etc. Uh, my seminary professor, I know I've told you this, Dr. Lederbach, uh, maybe had one of the best illustrations that I've ever heard on Ephesians 5.18, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and obeying that. Uh, and I think it's super helpful, so I want to make sure that if you weren't here for that, that I tell you. So um, all illustrations kind of break down, but we know at salvation, God doesn't give you like half the Holy Spirit and then command you in Ephesians 5.18. Now be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've only given you half. And if you're really good, I'll give you 51 and 57 and then, you know, 59 and then 61. And then by the time you've been really obedient, you get to 100. That's not how it works, right? God gives you the Holy Spirit at salvation. So you're like, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit if you gave me all the Holy Spirit? How does that work? He gave this illustration this way. He said, picture this two-liter bottle of Coke, um, and it's, it's maybe ha- got a fourth of it missing. It's a three-fourths filled with Pepsi. All of them break down, and you're like, well, it's not all the way filled. Okay, I get it. Just think of the illustration, all right? So you want to say, I'm not going to put any more Pepsi or Coke in here, but I want to fill the whole bottle. What can I do? I can shake it up like crazy, and then boom, it's filled. I didn't put any more in there, but it's filled. And in the same kind of way, that's, what we, that's how I think we can obey the command. We shake up what we're doing in our own lives so that the Holy Spirit completely fills us by knowing the love of Christ. We, we, we don't have a pattern of life that knows the love of Christ and prays for God to fill us. We do, so we shake up the way we live, and now we go over and we pursue Christ. We know him. We, we read his word. We pray like crazy that the Lord fills us. And what does he do? When that happens, we're filled. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told to imitate God by walking in the Spirit, but we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Ephesians 5.18, what Paul's trying to do is help you see the contrast between being filled with wine and being filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with wine, this is an outside source that comes in you, and when it comes in you, it fills you. It controls the way you think. It it changes you when you're inebriated, that you uh, lower your inhibitions, and you do things that you wouldn't do, like, as it says in Ephesians 5.18, debauchery. So an outside source comes in you, fills you and causes you to make bad decisions. In the same way, the outside source Holy Spirit should come in, inside of you and cause you, change you, not to make bad decisions, but to make good decisions. So he's, he's drawing a contrast of how wine can do that versus the Holy Spirit. They're not equal. You know, the Holy Spirit's way more powerful than wine, obviously, right? But he's, he's drawing out a metaphor, illustration, whatever you want to call it, um, here that we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, who's this outside thing that comes on us, and now he causes us to live a life of glory to Jesus. So we imitate God by walking in the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and let him be the thing that controls the way that we live. And when we do, we can see in Ephesians five eighteen through 21 that it comes with great benefits. An amazing set of benefits when we're walking a life filled with the Holy Spirit. First one right there, five eighteen. We stop living a life of debauchery. We, we are kept away from debauchery or sin, like drunkenness or any other sin. You could go back over to 5.3 and 5.5 five and 5.4. We're kept from those things. The Holy Spirit tells us not to do these things. Another benefit of walking in the Spirit is that we speak to each other differently. Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody into the heart with your Lord. So at one point... 
contrast, Paul, I think Paul's intentionally wanting us, as we've already talked about in 429 and 54 and 512, this is one way you can speak. You can uh, have corrupt talk coming out of your mouth that doesn't fit the occasion, etc. You can have 54 where you have corrupt, filthy joking, foolish talk, crude joking. You can have 512 where you take part in un, uh, shameful speaking of things that they do. That's one way you can speak. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, here's how you speak. You address one another in these particular ways, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing to each other, uh, making melody in your heart to the Lord. In other words, you know the Bible and you speak the Bible to people. You tell them what God's word says about stuff rather than having these be the contents of the way that you speak. So there's a great benefit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It also, um, let me just say one thing to you about this. When you read this, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, and you have the tendency, like me, to never really get on key. <laughs> uh, you want to sometimes, you're like, man, I just can't find it. Whatever, I don't know how to do that. Good that you can, musicians. Um, you're not like, since you can't sing, uh, like allowed to not sing. You still sing too. Everything you can sing out. And hopefully the music's loud enough that no one hears you and you don't get embarrassed. But... You should sing. This isn't just for those who can sing in key. It's for every single one of us uh, who can't sing in key. Um, We have to sing too. That's just a side note back to this. Um, Another benefit of the Holy Spirit is this. Verse 20, it directs us to thank God more often. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything. So we're already told that the way that we replace foolish talk is by thanksgiving and 5-4. The Holy Spirit's the one that directs us to do that. A benefit of being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, is that we actually do this more often. He directs us to thank God more often. And lastly, you can see a benefit of being filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that's just a, uh, a verse that brings us into the next section. Joe's gonna preach next week on marriage, where we have husbands and wives. Last service, I said husbands and man, which... Did not mean to say that. That, re- that changes the whole thing, right? That's not what I meant to do. I meant to say husbands and wife, man and woman. But anyway, back to this. Uh, I'm not going to get into next week's sermon. But what I can on verse 21 say is this. When it says submitting uh, to one another out of reverence for Christ, what does that mean? When the Holy Spirit fills us and he's benefiting us by helping us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, I think it means this. We start recognizing that everyone was made in the image of God. Everyone has the Imago Dei. And therefore, we don't treat anybody different based on anything. Money, status, race, whether they're from South Carolina or another place, it doesn't matter. We treat everyone. We submit ourselves willingly out of reverence for Christ to other people, no matter who they are. And a benefit of being filled with the Spirit is that we recognize that everyone is made in the image of God. And I want to treat everyone with love and care and respect. And therefore, uh, I don't ever think that anyone's better than me. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit, a benefit of walking in the Spirit does. So that's the four ways that we imitate God. Now, as we've looked at this, you can say that and you can say, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Fudd gave me like 3,000 things to do today. (laughs) Like how in the world am I ever gonna do this? There's no chance that I ever feel like I can get this done. I'm I'm so overwhelmed. Okay, don't be overwhelmed. Let's do this in conclusion. Instead of you freaking out and thinking this is so much stuff I have to do, let me point you to Jesus who did all these things. And when you see that, rest in that. 
Let your heart be satisfied that Jesus does these things and he's already declared you holy and righteous and given you the Holy Spirit and therefore you can. Jesus perfectly walked in love. Jesus perfectly was the light, walked as the light. Jesus perfectly walked in wisdom. Jesus perfectly walked in the Holy Spirit. So let me just, I could, I could go on forever on these, but let me just tell you some ways he did this. And as you hear these things, as you hear what Christ has done perfectly for you, know that means that Christ, when you're given this list, when God looks at you and says, I want you to do these things, he sees Christ. He sees that Christ has done these things. And therefore, you're counted as having done these things. Doesn't discount you from doing them, but know that God sees Jesus and sees holiness of Christ. Jesus walked perfectly in love by always giving time to the least of these. By healing people. He didn't have to heal people, but he loved them by healing. By treating women better than anyone else ever has. Especially in that culture. John 4. That's just one illustration. By treating children better than anyone ever did in the world, especially in that culture. See Matthew 18. By treating different races better. Looking the way he uses the Samaritans in the illustrations of the, um, when he talks about the good Samaritan. So Jesus walked perfectly in love by loving the least of these better than anyone. And so, yes, you can do it because he has done it for you. Jesus walked perfectly as light by obeying God completely all the way to the cross. By never sinning, though he was tempted. By never sinning so that he could actually give us his righteousness. Jesus walked as light by calling out the sins and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He lived in truth by doing that, the legalistic Pharisees, and preaching truth to the thousands of people that he always talked to and pointing them to God. Jesus walked perfectly in wisdom by completely maximizing his short time on earth that he had for the glory of God, which we're commanded to do. God, Jesus walked in perfect wisdom by constantly going to the Father in prayer. He didn't see prayer as something that, oh man, I forget to do. He maximized his time by praying and communing with his God, communing with his Father, and knowing that he needed guidance for the next day. Jesus walked in wisdom by always choosing the right way, always teaching truth, always explaining to his disciples how to glorify God, always explaining the meaning of the Old Testament, as we're told here that we're supposed to know the will of the Lord, is, always pointing to the meaning of the Old Testament and how he fulfilled it as the Messiah. He walked in perfect wisdom. Jesus also walked uh, in the Holy Spirit. As he's going out in Luke 3 and Matthew 3 to go on that 40-day fast before he starts his public ministry, both of those writers say, and Jesus, uh, led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. So Jesus was also filled with the Spirit as he went into life. So Jesus walked in the Spirit. And when he did, he didn't yield to the schemes and the temptations of Satan. But yet he lived perfect life because he was filled by, by the Spirit. As he went and fasted for 40 days to prepare for his three, year, three days of ministry, he walked perfectly in the Spirit. Jesus walked perfectly in the Spirit by yielding his Spirit to the Father as he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head on the cross and died. Jesus lived perfectly in the Spirit by explaining to all his disciples that they needed the Spirit. In John 14 and 16, when he said, it's better that I leave in the Comforter or the Holy Spirit come and be with you. It's better that it's, me, that it's, that it's God in you and not just God with you. And so God, Jesus lived perfectly in the Spirit by explaining to the disciples how much they needed the Spirit. Jesus walked perfectly in the Spirit by defeating Satan, sin, and death and by the power of the Spirit resurrecting from life three days later. 
The resurrection is everything for us. Without the resurrection, there's nothing. Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death and resurrected. And therefore, since he resurrected, every single one, and is still alive today, every single one of us will live forever and get eternal life. So don't fret. Christ has done these things for us. And therefore, God sees Christ and therefore sees that we have done these things in Christ and therefore we can do these things in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that we would see these things and look at these as great opportunities to be able to obey you and not be nervous or wondering if we ever can, but because Jesus has obeyed these things, we can. So Lord, give us a desire that wants to walk in love. Give us a desire to walk as light. Give us a desire to walk in wisdom. Fill us with the Spirit so that we can walk in the Spirit and live uh, a life that imitates you, glorifies you, and points others to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.